0: As we stand, let's pray. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Very impressive responses, I have to say at that point. Let's pray. Lord, you give us the joy of your spirit and you give us the job of mission. Please let us enter more fully into both because we've attended to your word this evening, we pray. Amen. Amen. Do please sit and find again, if you've closed it, uh, John chapter 20. Uh, I was uh, out with a friend the other day and he swallowed a fly. And your mind has gone instantly where mine went. Perhaps he'll die. He didn't. It's not that kind of story. And in your mind immediately, you go all the way through to, uh, he's dead, of course. The enormous consequence of follow, swallowing the horse uh, follows on that tiny, insignificant moment of swallowing the fly. I suppose that's what the sermon's are about in one way, not the fly and the horse, but significance and, and scale. Do you think there is anyone out there? Absolutely anyone. Probably in some kind of finance-related profession who is saying to him or herself, yep, it was me. I am the one who caused the global meltdown. Somehow, I doubt it. We have a natural talent for being irresponsible. More subtly, I suppose, we have a natural talent for avoiding uh, responsibility, for not facing responsibility properly, for not looking at what we do and seeing the great consequences that may ensue. Now, some people, I know, cope with that, respond to that by feeling responsible for everything. But tonight, I'm more concerned with those of us who cope by avoiding responsibility. See, I don't think it's possible to listen to these words of Jesus and not be changed in our sense of proper responsibility. And I'm going to isolate four moments within what Jesus uh, says or does in that very small reading. First, he appears in their midst. They're afraid, they've locked the doors, and he appears saying, peace be with you. It's the normal greeting. He identifies himself, showing them the wounds that he still carries. And we learn that they are overjoyed when they saw the lord but then he repeats peace be with you it was the normal greeting the first time round but if he's repeated it it makes it into the first of our moments it means we have to pay some attention to it perhaps you know that the the word in the ordinary greeting of those days still is is the word shalom it's not peace as we often think of it a sort of hush, but peace as wholeness. It's the peace of the man who can look out from his tent, a tent that has expanded as his family has grown, and he can see flocks being well cared for. He can see his children, grandchildren playing, and he knows that he is at peace with God. There is about shalom a sense of integration, a a, of settlement, of fruitfulness, life as, as it should be. So when Jesus repeats the phrase, it carries a sense not just of hello, but really, shalom. It is the, the match after the resurrection to the words from the cross, it is finished. All that was needed has been done. Now what remains is to inhabit it. God has established peace, now live in it. The man who looks out from his tent has not ceased from all work. There's family work to do. The flocks are still there and needing care. There is worship still to engage in. And Jesus passes immediately then to to our second moment, from speaking of peace to speaking of work. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That means we won't understand what it is to be sent by Jesus unless we first understand how did God send Jesus himself. That verse caused me to look up Uh, a concordance and just find all the the references in John's Gospel to sent. And I was astonished. It's amazing how often in John's Gospel Jesus speaks of himself as having been sent from God or the one sent from God. There's a point when um, the verse about sending is sandwiched between two others. In the one, Jesus uh, prays that we would be sanctified, which means to be set apart. In the other, the other end of the sandwich, he recognises that he is sanctified, set apart for us. Now what that suggests to me, set apart, sending set apart, is that the sending of Jesus is the sending of one who would be most himself When he was most for God. Most pointing to God. Most himself when most transparent for others to see God. Most himself when he was most distinct, set apart from himself in pointing to his Father. It seems that he is sent by the Father, set apart by the Father, Precisely to reveal the Father through being not the Father. It's a very odd idea, but it's a truth that we understand from the inside if we ever fall in love. We are most ourselves when we are most connected to the one we love. Perhaps that's why Ezekiel's picture always sounds so appealing. God will take away that hard, clashing heart of stone, and give us a heart of flesh, writing the ways of God within our own selves, not leaving the law as a harsh judgment constantly against us, but giving us to delight in God and his ways, as Christ shows shows us what those are. So our mission is as those whom Jesus sends, whom Jesus sets apart, We will be most ourselves when we are closest to Jesus. We will not be diminished by being close to Jesus. The closer we get to him, the more Christ-like we become, the more ourselves we become. We are sent to reveal him. And then our third moment. Verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them. Except he didn't. There is no them. There's no word them in the original. And the verb doesn't always get used to mean breathe on anything. It really just means breathed out. Now that matters because if he only breathed out rather than breathed on them, then we don't have to spend our time trying too hard to work how this passage And Acts 2 mesh together. Perhaps you were here this morning and heard the passage on Acts 2. Perhaps you're not familiar with Acts 2. It is the story of the day of Pentecost. And how in rushing wind and with flames of fire as in the banner above, the Holy Spirit comes in new power on those uh, who've been waiting in Jerusalem for the power that Jesus promised. But if we look at John John 20 in its own terms, nothing very special happens. If we didn't have Acts 2, then the joy would, as it were, stop in verse 20. It's really not like Acts 2 at all. He breathed out and he gave them some work to do. The rest of John's gospel isn't marked by any new joy, any new power, any new authority. And so it makes most sense that John recorded this story fully aware that that Jesus is not uh, trying to do a Pentecost moment, but kind of doing a little one for John, special to John. There's no sense in that. Apart from anything else, it would mean that Thomas had missed it. Uh, Rather, what's going on is that he knows fully uh, what happened at Pentecost? Jesus is, in John's gospel, therefore, symbolizing ahead of time on resurrection evening, the event that John already knew uh, would actually then happen a, a little while later, the fire in Jerusalem. Now it's interesting, he, he doesn't say, like a modern preacher might. Would you like to receive the Holy Spirit? will step forward. He doesn't say, Receive the Holy Spirit if that's all right with you. It's simply, Receive the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I often wonder, because we so easily approach this passage with Acts 2 in our minds, what was their reaction? Do you think they thought at that moment, Oh, goody. Or do you think they thought, Thanks, I think. What I wonder, with no idea, went through their minds when Jesus said, here it is, you don't have a choice, receive the Holy Spirit. Those whom he has previously chosen are going to receive the Holy Spirit whether they want to or not. Uh, We assume it's not only them, Thomas isn't there in the room, but we never get any notion that later on, when Jesus reappears a week later, Thomas sort of misses out on the Holy Spirit by tradition. Thomas went off and established the church in India. And that's not something easily done without the Holy Spirit. Well, in this being sent then, they are going to need the Holy Spirit in their lives. The two things belong together. And then we come to the fourth moment, the most perplexing of all. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And there are two broad streams here into which the church divides. The Catholic Church tends to use it to refer to the practice of confession to a priest. It it is the, uh, the moment, according to that view, when Jesus confers the right to forgive sins. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. In the first place, it would seem to defy belief that Jesus, on resurrection evening, was setting up the conditions for priestly confession. Secondly, there is absolutely no evidence that this forgiveness on this passage, on that reading, uh, is only for ordained clergy. Any more than receive the Holy Spirit is only for ordained clergy. Now, the other stream goes off in a different direction. A Protestant stream says, the forgiveness of sins comes via the preaching of the gospel. So as the gospel is preached and people respond or refuse to respond, then they either find forgiveness or forgiveness is denied them. And as you'd expect, I've got a lot more sympathy with that. But there's still a problem. If Jesus had meant this is all going to happen as the preacher proclaims the gospel, would he really have begun that moment by saying, if you forgive anyone his sins? It just seems very odd to me. I suspect the truth is a little different from that. And it's that that's going to take the rest of our time. If the sending is about revealing God, And in a way that needs the Holy Spirit, then the basic Protestant view has to be right. Forgiveness comes in the hearing of the good news. God is revealed. Men and women become children of God. There is the beginning of a likeness to Jesus Christ that develops in us. And in that way, the sending that that was from the Father of Jesus is continued in the sending of his followers by Jesus. So far, so good. But somewhere we have to find a way of interpreting, if you forgive anyone his sins. And I wonder whether we've been so concerned, understandably, to insist that only God can forgive sins, that we've rather depersonalised the whole business. The truth is, if you present the good news and someone repents, you are entitled to say, I forgive you your sins. Yes, you do so as one who was sent like Christ was. You do not do it to draw attention to yourself. You stay within the boundaries that Jesus is drawing for us here. But you do not avoid the personal responsibility that is yours to speak to another human being and have the extraordinary privilege of saying, insofar, As you are responding to the good news that you are a child of God and repenting in your heart, then I am authorised and indeed commanded to let you know that you are indeed forgiven. I forgive you your sins. Now, of course I know that that is cloud cuckoo land. We don't do it. But my point is precisely that I think we should. I want to argue that taken as a whole, this passage is a mandate to live active, Responsible gospel lives. And the emphasis is on active. In the Catholic stream, the rest of us can say, well, we aren't ordained priests, so we don't have to do it. But in the Protestant stream, the effect can be to say, where the preacher is preaching, there will be forgiveness of sins. I'm not a preacher, so I don't have to do it. It's just wrong. You already know that I and some others are preachers. So, you could leave all this to the preachers. But these words of Jesus receive the Holy Spirit, now go and do the job. They summon all of us, and that means me, but also all of you, to levels of responsibility that we may not have dreamed of. There's challenge in those words. And there is joy as those words are fulfilled. The joy and the job go together. Perhaps you come here to evening service on your own. Many do. Perhaps you welcome the experience of community that it offers. Perhaps it helps keep you going through another week. Perhaps you're facing particular challenges at the moment. And being here helps. Great. But I think at Pentecost... God is asking you and he's telling you to take it up a level or two or three. You are someone who can receive the Holy Spirit. And if you can receive the Holy Spirit, then you get to declare forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, in your minds, if you haven't already switched off, you're saying, well, I couldn't possibly. That's for someone else. I couldn't possibly do that. That's for people who sit in the front row. (laughs) And I'm sure that life would be much more chaotic if we all took this verse seriously. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I'm sure we can cope with a little chaos. Let me say this. Even if you are are aware of coming to church, mostly to attend to the challenges you may face, you're not exempt Because you are not here to have all those problems smoothed away. Likely as not in the way God seems to deal with most of us. You will leave here with those challenges and those problems. But you will also leave with an enhanced confidence in the joy and the challenge of the Holy Spirit and the job that he gives us. And it's as we exercise the one that we find the other is just less important. We get to have the joy of declaring forgiveness. Alongside, there are challenges to us that are real. And in practice, it means the obvious thing: What are you going to be doing at 10:30 tomorrow morning? Wherever that may be. What will it mean to forgive their sins because you've told them the good news? If we all faced these words seriously, wouldn't we find them alarming? that the living God of heaven and earth should come into the world in Jesus and say, if you forgive someone his sins. Those words are breathtaking, it seems to me. I kind of want to run to Jesus and say, no, don't say those words. You cannot imagine what we will do with them. You haven't a clue what you will unleash. But maybe he has thought about that. And maybe he means what he says. He, he, the Son of God, is willing to take the risk of giving me and you so much responsibility that we will not be able to undertake it without the Holy Spirit. Frankly, I can get through most of my day tomorrow without the Holy Spirit, and so can you. But that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants me to face tomorrow with such a sense of responsibility that I couldn't begin to think about getting through it without the Holy Spirit in my life. He, he is willing to give us a commission to undertake so vast that only his own commission from the Father can serve as a proper comparison. Again, what are you thinking, Jesus? Jesus? If you're going to send us, send us. But what are you thinking, saying, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you? That The push from below, pushing us up to this extraordinary level, is breathtaking. He wants us to be in the business of letting others know the good news, such that we are the ones, not someone else, not priests or preachers, But we rejoicing to say, know that your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. It's one of those rare times when when I'm absolutely clear in my own mind what the response to a talk needs to be. You may be alert to your own fear. That's okay. You may be here as someone who yourself doesn't yet know Jesus Christ as the Lord. That's okay. A warm welcome to you. But the overriding reality in this text is this. Jesus met them and gave them a commission. He gave them the responsibility to undertake it and he gave them the power of the Spirit to engage in it. If you walk up to one of these rails tonight to open your hands and your mouth to receive in all humility the sign of Christ's death for you, then there's no way you can listen to this text and know anything else other than Christ's command to walk away from that rail, to grasp the full responsibility of Christ's life, his own life, by his spirit in you. What is the news? There is peace, shalom, with God. Now go and speak it. Know the power of God to speak it, Know the joy of declaring others forgiven because of it. And never, ever, please, never believe or say that it is for someone else to do. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer as we finish tonight is not so much for those of us who are saying, quite understandably, oh, I couldn't do that, there's so much to learn. Or for those who are saying, uh, oh, I couldn't do that, there's so much to pray. But simply for those who, before we get that far, just think it's, it's for someone else. You give to each one of us Your Holy Spirit, when you adopt us as your children. You give to each one of us uh, in our service this evening these tokens of love in Christ's death. So, how can it not be that you give to each one of us the commission to let the world know what peace with God really means? Yes, there's stuff to learn, Lord. Yes, there's stuff to pray. Yes, we feel inadequate but please let us not run away in our hearts or think that it's for someone else to do. Amen.